Allen, your host, and a quick shout out to a couple of our local business partners in the Des Moines Metro. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, my grocery store, and you can get breakfast on the weekends and lunch and dinner seven days a week through their takeout program. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Noche Jazz and Cabaret, Des Moines' premier location for jazz. Located just south of the Sculpture Park, live concerts with appropriate social distancing and also available via live stream. That's Noche Jazz and Cabaret. All right, again, welcome to the program. Ed Fallon with you here broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Yeah, that's right. Also, the um, middle of the uh, polar vortex. Maybe it's not the polar vortex, but it's this early blast of cold weather that has everybody, including me, whining a little bit. Has my garden whining, too. Our crops are just not happy these days. Hey, anyway, so uh, looking ahead here, we're going to be talking with uh, um, Matt, um, Matt Maturin about why he, as a Republican, is supporting Joe Biden. Uh, we'll also be talking with Charles Goldman about um, how Biden's support for fracking might, uh, might present a bit of a political problem. And we'll be looking at how the Trump administration has been shed, uh, not shedding, shredding, rather, workplace safety regs uh, in the middle of a pandemic. And then Kathy Burns will join us later in the program. We're going to do a fall garden Q&A. But first, out of the uh, gate here, I want to talk about how the world is viewing the election here in the U.S. Uh, you know, and, and I, I look at this through the lens of the climate crisis, but it, there, are, there are much broader concerns in terms of how the world is looking at this. You know, I, again, most of us in this country, I think, are pretty anxious. Wherever you stand on the political spectrum, you're probably somewhat anxious about next week's election and about the outcome. So... If it's any comfort, most of the world is also anxious. <laughs> so we got plenty of company. Um, and surprisingly, well, you know, perhaps not surprisingly, if Trump were on the ballot in some nations, he would win. I was surprised to find that. But there was a Pew Research Center survey last year. And maybe it would change this year. But it found that 71% of Israelis expressed confidence in Trump to do the right thing regarding world affairs. I don't know if that still holds, but that's um, amazing. That was actually higher than any level of support in 31 other countries that the Pew uh, survey studied, except for the Philippines. I, I have no idea what's going on in the Philippines. There was another um, study. This one's more recent. Uh, YouGov conducted a poll just this month, in fact, and it found, uh, again, not surprisingly to me at least, that, that Trump is extremely unpopular in Europe. Uh, for example, in, in Britain, only 13% of those polled said they would support Trump's re-election. <laughs> wow, okay, so Boris Johnson, you should uh, take note of that. Uh, you know, on the broader issue of the um, evolution of the Republican Party, uh, England's largest paper, one of their two largest papers, I believe, The Guardian, had this to say, and I quote, The Republican Party of the U.S. has undergone the most dramatic shift in an established democracy over the past two decades, to become significantly more, quote, illiberal, I like that word, illiberal, uh, in encouraging violence against its supporters and shunning democratic norms, the party has become closer to autocratic parties in Hungary and Turkey than to center-right parties in Europe, end of quote. And so, you know, maybe one reason Europeans are skeptical of Donald Trump is because, you know, he and, and now the Republican Party remind them you know, too much of the rise of fascism in the 1930s. Um, 
every part of the world that has been hit hard by violence historically. But, you know, that's fresh on the minds of many in Europe. That was not that long ago. And so maybe they see the parallels and they are concerned. And they, you know, if, if, again, if Trump were to run for premier in Great Britain, he'd get 13%, <laughs> according to that poll. And I, I bet it's not that different in a lot of other European countries. You know, you know, and there are plenty of detractors on this side of the pond as well, of course. Uh, and I would just mention two that are fairly well known and fairly influential. One is Bob Woodward and the other is Mary Trump. That's uh, President Trump's uh, niece who wrote a book about uh, her experience with, uh, with Donald Trump and the family. Uh, they have both warned that if Trump wins again, democracy is over. Now, that, may be, that may be an overstatement, but uh, I don't know. It may not be. Um, again, diplomats, diplomats rather, uh, here and around the world have warned that a Trump victory could cripple global environmental efforts, also known as the climate crisis. And again, we've already seen the crippling effect that uh, President Trump's response to the climate crisis has had, uh, with the pulling out of the uh, U.S. Par the uh, the U.N. Paris uh, Paris Accord, yeah, um, and and and. And what, rolling back nearly 100 environmental protection and climate-related regulations here in the U.S., you know, those have an impact well beyond our borders, well beyond uh, our own policies. So, you know, as, a, as John Podesta, he was one of uh, Barack Obama's advisors, uh, specifically on climate policy, uh, I didn't meet him, but I did meet some of the people working with him after the Great March for Climate Action, he says, and I quote, it would be pretty much game over for the international system if Trump is reelected, end quote. And I think what he means by interna international system is things like the UN Climate Summit. Uh, you know, agreements that require countries in good faith to step forward and try to negotiate um, uh, progress and to stick with it. You know, and again, we've seen the erosion of those kinds of agreements, not just when it comes to the UN Climate Summit, but um, with the treaties with uh, nuclear um, restriction treaties with Russia, uh, the nuclear deal with Iran. You know, so I, I think people, sure, there are countries like Israel, apparently, where most people support Trump, uh, which, again, I was kind of surprised about, and the Philippines, even also surprised. But, um, you know, Overall, there's a lot of concern about what a Trump re-election means to international affairs, what it means to the ability of the world to continue to work with the U.S. on all the different things we need to address, not just from fighting climate change and addressing uh, nuclear weapons, but the pandemic, uh, the economy, so many different things. So, you know, and again, when it comes to climate, the world is not unaware of the fact that Trump has taken stuff in the other direction. I mean, what about leasing 5.4 million acres of public land to oil and gas companies? You know, you know, Joe Biden's pointing out that, you know, with a green economy, you can employ 10 times as many people as you can currently in the fossil fuel industry. And so my, my question, you know, with these 5.4 million acres of public land now being handed over to oil and gas companies to drill, how many jobs are those creating? I can tell you from my experience here in Iowa, there weren't a lot of jobs created, except for some very short-term jobs, in the uh, pipeline. 
The Dakota Access Pipeline, yeah, hired a bunch of people. And by the way, about 90% of them were not from Iowa. And uh, now they, what I've been told is there are about 15 people employed in managing the pipeline through Iowa. You know, but you build wind turbines. And again, I'd love to see us find a way to build them in a more decentralized fashion. You build wind turbines, you build solar panels, you, um, you employ people in conservation efforts, in, in energy efficiency. There are so many more jobs involved in that. So, you know, but Trump doesn't want to talk about that. He wants to go ahead and turn our public lands over to his buddies in the oil and gas industry. Now, the, um, the evidence shows that the drilling from those leases alone, that the leases on that 5.4 million acres of public land, that could release enough greenhouse gas emissions to equal over 1,000 coal-fired power plants for a year. That's significant. Again, not only is it less jobs, but it's much more damage to the environment. And the world notices these things. And the world is moving in the other direction, not exclusively, but largely. So again, really, and I just briefly want to touch on the Supreme Court. So even if Trump is granted, or sorry, even if Trump is not granted a second term, you know, there's so much more damage. There's so much damage waiting to happen in the judicial branch. Now, Amy Coney, Amy Coney Barrett is um, likely to, she's likely to rule badly on cases affecting climate. You know, Kamala Harris uh, was kind of clever in how she questioned Barrett. And um, Barrett called the scientific consensus on climate change, quote, a very contentious matter of public debate. You know, tell that to science. So if Barrett, um, I mean, Barrett is, is on the court. Uh, if, Barrett, if the Barrett court, let's call it the Barrett court, is going to review environmental and climate-related rulings. Well, what about the uh, 2007 ruling um, that uh, allowed the government to regulate carbon emissions? In all likelihood, that would come back up and the court would strike that down. You know, and that's despite the fact that the overwhelming majority of Americans support reducing carbon emissions. So, you know, whether or not Trump is reelected, the Supreme Court is poised to issue critical rulings affecting oil and gas, affecting the climate crisis, and they're going to have effects for many, many years to come. Um, you know, and one thing about Barrett is that she has a conflict of interest regarding Shell Oil because she, uh, she's, she, in the past, she has recused herself from cases involving Shell uh, because her father worked there as a lawyer. Um, you know, industry, industry experts and climate people and lawyers all have concerns about whether or not she would recuse herself on the Supreme Court. Because there is kind of a precedent that maybe uh, Supreme Court justices are held to a different standard, you know. She was pressed on that by uh, Senator uh, Sheldon Whithouse, or Whitehouse, rather, from uh, Rhode Island. Um, and Barrett would not commit herself to recusing herself from such cases. So, uh, you know, again, the bottom line is, whether Trump wins or loses, we have a world of work to do. We have a lot of work to do on how we restructure the Supreme Court. And again, the lifetime appointments, got to get rid of those. Um, you know, expanding the court, probably a good idea. And um, figuring out how to better manage the whole system of appointments so you aren't having this situation where a Senate can, for example, totally stonewall one Democratic president while letting a Republican president appoint 300 judges to key positions. All right, um, so much more that could be said about that. We're going to take a short break here, folks. When we come back, uh, Matt, Matt Turner is going to join us. We're going to talk about why some Republicans 
are supporting Joe Biden for president on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. At East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open Monday through Saturday for dine-in, patio seating, curbside pickup, and carry-out. Hawk also serves fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q table.com. Back to the Fallon Forum again, Ed Fallon with you here, folks. Uh, thanks to our local business partners, including Gateway Marketing Cafe, my grocery store, and a great place for uh, lunch and supper seven days a week through their takeout program. They've also got brunch on the weekends at, through takeout as well. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. Thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis with 30 years of experience specializing in cutting-edge and environmentally friendly designs, including super-insulated structures made from grain bins. That's architecture by synthesis. All right, hey, later in the program, we're going to be talking with Charles Goldman about, uh, about the election, about uh, labor law, and later than that, beyond the very tail end of the program, Kathy Burns is joining us to do a Q&A on fall gardening. But at this point, I'd like to welcome Matt Mattern to the program. He's an attorney, an entrepreneur, and a philanthropist who challenged Donald Trump in this year's Republican primary. Um, Matt is also the founder of the Satyagraha Foundation. Hmm, Gandhi, uh, nonviolent action. I'm fascinated by that. We'll have to get to talking about that before the end of the uh, segment, Matt. But uh, hey, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ed, for having me on the show. So you were on the ballot earlier this year as a Republican alternative to Donald Trump. Uh, that's correct, yes. I'm a lifelong Republican, and I was just uh, fed up with the direction that Donald Trump was leading the party as well as the country and felt that there were other voices in the party that should stand up to him and say, this is wrong, and you're heading the party and the country kind of off the cliff and uh, we need to stand up and um, take notice and kind of do whatever we can to stop this. You know, last year uh, during the 2019 Iowa caucuses, the lead up to that, uh, myself and a bunch of uh, my colleagues, I should say, at Bold Iowa, we met with two Republicans running for president, uh, Bill Weld and Joel Walsh. I, I didn't realize you were on the ballot. I, how many Republicans were on the ballot last year against Trump? Uh, well, it depended on which state. There sure. were more in New Hampshire than there were in any of the other states. So um, um, it varied from three to 17, but probably mostly around three to five were right. kind of the more serious candidates. Uh I guess my advisors had told me, let's focus on New Hampshire instead of Iowa because of the 
challenges of uh, working in the caucus system, um, maybe in 2020 hindsight, it would have been wise to have uh, jumped into Iowa as well. I can't answer that, <laughs> especially especially how Iowa turned out. But uh, so you might, I guess, you know, uh, what, what what was your point in running? You, do, I, I'm guessing you didn't seriously expect to beat Donald Trump, correct? The expectation was not that I would beat Donald Trump, but was to uh, raise voices within the Republican Party to say, hey, there are people in the party that disagree with what he's doing. 63% of the electorate in New Hampshire in, in 2016 had voted against him or voted for a different candidate. So there was clearly a group of people that were potentially um, willing to take a look at somebody else. And so that was the audience that I was uh, speaking to. Now, in the case of the Democrats who challenged Joe Biden in the primary, they all, even Bernie Sanders, all of them got behind Biden when he won. Uh, with Republicans, uh, at least this time around, that's uh, it's different. Uh, you've got Weld and Walsh, who are now supporting Biden. Um, again, you've got the former Republican governor of Ohio, John Kasich, supporting uh, Biden. Uh, so is um, U.S. Senator Jeff Flake from Arizona. So is the former governor of Michigan, Rick Snyder. And you've got dozens of staffers from the campaigns of George Bush, Mitt Romney, John McCain, actively supporting Biden. I know you can't speak for all of them. You've got plenty of company. <laughs> but um, what, you know, again, what, I mean, maybe try to speak. Tell us why you're supporting Biden, but maybe also why you think so many key Republicans are doing so. Well, one of the main reasons that uh, I got into the race was uh, President Trump's lack of concern for the environment. And I believe that it was something that was, you know, the Republicans basically started going back to Lincoln starting national parks and Teddy Roosevelt expanding on it and Nixon signing EPA into law. Um, those those were things that the Republican Party stood for. And essentially, Trump has completely backed away from from those programs that I think are essential for the health of the country, the health of the planet and um he just is so myopic that he just doesn't care anything beyond today or getting money now is always more important than the future. But didn't, so the, that was, but didn't the Republican Party start backing away from caring about the environment long before Trump? I mean, Ronald Reagan came into the White House and took down the solar panels that Jimmy Carter had put up. Um, there's no doubt that uh, the Republican Party hadn't been as environmentally conscious as would have been ideal, but uh, George H.W. Bush had ran on the platform of wanting to be the environmental president and signed into law extensions of the Clean Air Act. So it, it hadn't been as clearly anti-environmental, which Trump is clearly in the anti-environmental camp. So, so you, don't, you don't take Trump seriously when he says, I'm for clean water and crystal clear air? Well, even if that were true, just for say, our cities and towns, that isn't enough. And I don't even take that as being true because obviously he is in a neighboring state in Minnesota. He's threatening the Boundary Waters canoe area, which is right up on the border with Canada with a mining project led by this Chilean mining company that has a history of corruption and actually 
rented the house that Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner are living in in Washington were rented to them by this mining company uh, leader. So uh, there, the corruption and um, you know regime that he is he's been a part of certainly has no concern for the environment. So is it, do you think it's time for a new political party in the U.S.? I mean, you've got. You know, there's there's a lot of dissatisfaction with the Democratic Party, um, but you've got a Republican Party that uh, has gone off the rails, and so much so that a lot of key Republicans, including those like you who have challenged Trump in the presidential primary, who are voting for the Democratic nominee. Uh, do you think it's think time for a new party? Is, I think there is some space for a new party, maybe an independent party. There are more independent voters in California than there are re- registered Republicans. So. I think there are areas of the country that are definitely open for potential independent candidates. And I think that might keep the parties more honest if they actually had to compete for these independent voters. Uh, The challenge, of course, is how do you set up a, a third political party in what is, for all intents and purposes, a two party system? It is challenging, and but there have been some successful candidates in the in the past a few cycles that have won as independents. Uh, it, it's going to take it's going to take a lot of work, and I think ranked choice choice voting may help lead us in that direction. But and, do you think either, do you think either party is going to be willing to allow ranked choice voting? When I was the lawmaker and introduced that, it was shot down by both parties. Uh, well, it could get on the ballot through uh, you know the ballot initiative process. It, it won in Maine uh, recently, so it is the law of the land in Maine, and I believe it's uh, potentially going to take effect in some other states, hopefully. That's a good point. So I, I think that there there is that possibility, I think, of uh, putting it to the voters directly and, and letting the voters decide. Okay. So um, before I ask you about the Satyagraha Foundation, what's what's next for you uh, let, let's presume the election is going to be over next week or at least uh, shortly thereafter. What's next for you, Matt, in terms of your political work? Well, I've uh, set up a, a super PAC that's championing America at her best, which is really focused on, on trying to get Joe Biden elected. And people can check out our website at championingamerica.com. And we've got some videos uh, which depict a, a Mr. Rogers-like character that is watching the TV and seeing Donald Trump on on the air and all the things that he's done and, and gets to the point of being in tears. Um, and I think that that's, that's really what I'm focused on now is is the election. And, and after that, uh, who knows? But, but I think uh, trying to keep both sides honest going forward, because I think even if Joe Biden wins, I think he needs to be held accountable right. as well so that uh, we don't have similar problems going forward. Because I think a, a more centrist presidency will be healing for the country. So we just got about a minute left, um, Matt, but I'm interested in you. The Satyagraha Foundation, again, for folks who don't know, Satyagraha is a, a Hindi or maybe Sanskrit word that means uh, truth force. It was uh, the, the, the word used to describe Gandhi's nonviolent action in leading toward independence in India. Uh, sounds like an unlikely um, name of a foundation founded by a Republican. Uh. <laughs> well, I, uh, 
I got into it, I guess I had a little bit of study of yoga and, and also had read some, read a book about Gandhi and I really liked uh, some of the nonviolent actions that he proposed and he was a, an attorney and one that worked for employees, which is really what I do. That's my work. I'm an employment attorney who helps uh, employees against uh, larger companies. So that's one of the things that drew me to it. And, and we've got a homeless problem here in California. And so I set up a foundation. We help with the homeless community and different charities here in, in Los Angeles. And uh, we also work with some environmental groups uh, here in California. So uh, that was, that was kind of the genesis of, of why I set up the foundation and working with various community groups here in, in California to, to uh, make a better California for us. Yeah. Well, that sounds uh, very encouraging, Matt. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Um, if folks want to get in touch with you, is there a website or email address that they should use to contact you or to learn more about you? Sure. They can check out uh, thechampioningamerica.com. And uh, my email is mjm at championingamerica.com. And right. I would love to hear from uh, your listeners and look forward to maybe talking with you in the future, hopefully. Right. Thanks so much, Matt. Folks, we've been talking with Matt Mattern, a former Republican candidate for president, who among along with a lot of other Republicans are now supporting Joe Biden. Interesting stuff. Back in a minute, folks, with Charles Goldman joining us, we're going to get into the uh, comments that Joe Biden made regarding fracking and how that might impact the uh, election. But the bigger picture of where is this thing going? A week from now, we'll know the outcome of the election, what's going to happen. I'll give you my take on what I think this is going to, how this is going to result. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, and Tina Haas Findlay. Every Wednesday night, you can enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest-running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche also offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. Noche on Walnut Street, south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. Fallon with you here broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa. Hey, thanks to our local nonprofit partners who have helped make this program possible. Uh, thanks to Bold Iowa fighting climate change and the Dakota Access Pipeline since 2015. Check out boldiowa.com. Thanks also to Birds and Bees Urban Farm where you can learn how to turn your yard into dinner. Go to birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. All right, welcome back again, folks. And with us for this segment of the program, uh, Dr. Charles Goldman. Um, 
we're going to talk about, we're going to start by talking about Joe Biden's comments about fracking, but I want to get into the big picture of where we think this whole election is going to land. So Charles, welcome to the show, and um, I presume you watched the recent debate. Uh, as much as I could. You mean as much um, as you could time-wise or as much as you could handle in terms of your intestinal fortitude? Well, it, it was mostly that I didn't really know what I was going to hear that I haven't already heard a thousand times. And, you know, I would love if we had a true debate. Uh, you know, if we had a debate in which they didn't give them the questions ahead of time or the topics ahead of time, and let's see these people think on their feet, you know. Yeah. But uh, if, if, if that were the case, then we wouldn't be picking 70-year-olds to do this. <laughs> you know, okay, and so. again, fracking. Uh, <laughs> Trump wasn't even so asked fracking. about fracking, but, yeah. but, but Biden made, made it really clear, as did Kamala Harris in the VP debate, made it really clear that they are not against, they're not going to propose a f- ban on fracking. Well, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think that's just that's just political maneuvering, which is if you look at the ads on TV, you can see that the um, Republicans are trying to tie the two of them to the Green New Deal, um, which is obviously an aspirational document. Um, and that's seen as a negative. And particularly since the election could potentially come down to Pennsylvania, um, I, I, they're cautious about uh, antagonizing a state which, uh, at least in ter- even in terms of unions, is fairly pro-fracking. But on the flip uh, side, on the flip side, you've got a lot of voters uh, on the progressive side of the the, the 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 scale who are absolutely against fracking, who are passionate about taking strong climate action, who may see Biden's support for fracking as a reason just to say, "Forget it, I'm not going to vote for him." Do you see yeah, that as a risk? And, and, uh, well, I think that's true, but that's again, it's another one of these purity tests. So. All those people who are hopeful of seeing fracking disappear, uh, do you think that's more likely to happen under a Democratic regime or a Republican regime? Yeah, and that's and a reasonable it, question. It, <laughs> you can make fracking disappear one easy way, which is if you have an administration in place which makes solar, wind, and other alternative energy cheaper and stops supporting the phony lowered price of oil and natural gas products, Fracking will disappear as a market issue. In fact, we already talked about this. Once the price of oil gets down to where it is right now, fracking is not economically feasible. They're money losers. And the biggest danger is that when you close down these wells, they continue to leak methane. They continue to despoil the water table around it. And the same people who live in these states now getting no economic benefit from fracking are going to be poisoned in their own houses. Right. And so, you know, the other thing that, that Joe Biden said during the debate that uh, piqued t- uh, Trump's interest was that uh, there were, that his goal was to get out, you know, and to end oil production eventually, which, I mean, that's consistent with what science is telling us we have to do if we're going to rein in the climate crisis. But Trump jumped on that and mentioned by name Pennsylvania. Uh, right. he, and he mentioned, I think, uh, Oklahoma and Texas as well. You know, so you can see, I mean, I, I see what you're saying. You know, I mean, I, yeah, I, I want to see us get off oil as well. And and I don't know whether Biden really meant it or he would just maybe he slipped. Maybe he really did mean it. But I can see how Trump would uh, jump on that and try to use it for to advantage in states where you've got a lot of support for fracking, for coal mining. Well, but, but remember, Ed, that uh, everyone forgets that in the vice presidential debate, Pence went at Kamala Harris five times about the fracking issue because uh, 
you know, Harris was a much more vocal supporter during the primaries of the Green New Deal. And, you know, polling in places like Pennsylvania after the vice presidential debate, in which she avoided answering the question, showed that there was no detriment to avoiding answering the question. And recent polling in Pennsylvania shows things are basically unchanged. So um, I I think it was more tactical than it representative of what Biden would do. And again, it's never going to happen that oil and gas interests are going to be ignored by Republican administrations. Of course. And, you know, if even if the Democrats were able to push through a regime in which we simply told oil and gas companies no more getting these leases on the cheap, no more getting depletion, you know, these phony depletion allowances, you're going to have to charge the American people what it really costs to extract these products. Right. Um, then that in and of itself would drive oil out of, you know, most of it. There are places where you're going to have to have oil and gas. You can't make natural gas disappear. I mean, in terms of electric generation and everything else, we, we already know that without a battery technology, you're not going to be able to get rid of natural gas completely. Well, it's going to and, have to happen. And, I mean, that, that is the challenge of a, of a presidency that is not steeped in denier, denial. But um, let, me ask, let, let, me, let, me, let me move on before we run out of time here. I want to, I sure. want to ask about the, uh, the big picture. So, again, fracking might influence how people vote one way or the other. But I think the big challenge for Biden is to win a clear and unequivocal you know, victory on Election Day or shortly thereafter. He's got he's to win big because if he doesn't, um, I'm just I'm, I'm, I'm not convinced uh, that uh, he's going to be able to withstand the assault that's coming at him from Trump, from Republican governors, from the U.S. House, from the uh, from the uh, from the Supreme Court, because um, here's what I see is if Republicans, Republicans right now control 26 delegations in the U.S. House, even though Democrats have more members, the Republicans have more delegations. And if um, two or more of the uh, of states with Republican governors, states that are swing states like Arizona, Georgia, Texas, Florida, Ohio, Iowa, if you know one or one or two or three of those state governors refuse to certify the results by December 14th, that's going to go to the U.S. House. And if the Republicans still have that delegation advantage, they'll give the, the election to Trump. But here's here's what here's what I'm fascinated by: there are several critical congressional races. There's one in Florida, and then you've got Alaska, where there's only one seat. Montana, one seat, and those are competitive. And if Democrats were able to gain either parity or a majority, if Democrats got 26 seats, then, you know, the Republicans aren't going to, the, the Republican governors aren't going to refuse to certify. They aren't going to send it to the U.S. House. I think, I think what they're going to do is try to find various nefarious tactics to suppress and cast doubt on the absentee vote count. And they'll skip the U.S. House and send it to the Supreme Court, and we'll see what happened with Al Gore in 2000, and the U.S. Supreme Court will give the election to Trump. What do you think of that scenario? Well, I mean, I think, you know, we've talked about it, and obviously um, it's been talked about a lot on both, you know, right-wing and left-wing mass media that there were all these holes in the wonderful Constitution in which really none of this has been defined, um, and it's created problems in the past. So uh, I think all those are possibilities. I I know that the, the, the sort of accepted wisdom is is that Biden needs to win in the landslide. I would argue that certainly that would be helpful, but I would also argue that if there's multiple swing states in which it is so close and 
you're not going to have a situation where the Supreme Court didn't have trouble saying, okay, we're going to completely violate the state law of Florida. We're also not going to count 100,000 votes that never got counted, and we're going to stop counting right now. Uh, by the way, one of those people who wrote that brief was Go John for Roberts. <laughs> okay, right. John Roberts yeah, wrote yeah. the brief that came to the Supreme Court in 2000. Um, but if it's multiple swing states in which they're trying to pull these kind of shenanigans, I don't believe that the Supreme Court in the situation of ruling on six or seven states is going to go it, it only takes Florida. One, it only takes one if it's enough to push uh, Biden below 270 electoral votes. And, you know, it's only been one, it's only taken one state to tip the election in the past. I mean, in 2000, it was Florida. In 2004, it was Ohio. You know? Right. In, right. No, I understand in, that, last it's year not was, going to be that way. In, last year, was, way it, it, in 2016, it was Michigan. So it only no, takes it, one it, state. It's multiple states this time that are up for grabs among these supposed swing states. Okay. So and you, it, have states, you have states in play that make no sense at this point. You've got Georgia in play, which makes no sense based no. on prior patterns. Uh, well, things I'm not are so sure Biden's going to win Florida. And if Biden doesn't win, I'm sorry, I'm not so sure that Trump's going to win Florida. And if Trump doesn't win Florida, the election's over. Well, um, yeah, maybe. But again, define winning. That's the problem. Winning. Um, <laughs> it, right. No, it, and, it and might, you, have uh, regime, you have a completely corrupt government in Florida led by Ron DeSantis and Republican legislature that basically tried to guarantee Trump winning by not uh, enforcing the referendum that 60 plus percent of the people passed there two years ago saying felons should have their right to vote. Give it back. So one more question. Um, my, my friend Steve Martin, who was on the Great March for Climate Action, just uh, sent me an interesting photograph from uh, eastern Colorado. He said he saw a lot of this sort of thing. The photograph, it's a very anti-Biden, pro-Trump um, display. It's not, just a, it's not just a sign. It's an entire entourage of key Democrats in cages um, with lots of military hardware, including tanks, lined up alongside of mm -hmm. it. And yeah. he, he said he saw a lot of that. And, and his concern is that, um, you know, if, um, and I've heard this expressed by other people as well, if Biden wins, a lot of these folks who are really upset at the direction of the country's heading, folks on the right, are going to um, take up arms. There's going to be, I mean, we've even heard people say very openly about the oncoming, the upcoming civil war. And you got the Perazzo brothers, or, or father-son team of the Perazzos, Dino Junior and Dino Senior, who've got this um, this uh, this network of websites that promote Trump. Uh, they have a far right anti government militias uh, that they promote. Um, they offer these distorted versions of current events, um, and they they argue prepare to take America back. Uh, they have um, nearly a million followers. Uh, you know this is maybe more serious than QAnon, or maybe there's a lot of overlap with QAnon, but. Um, you know, they've been they've been posting that, you know, get your guns ready, folks. If we lose this election, we've got work to do. How serious do you take well, that? Who, who, who are they going to take up arms against? Well, that's a great question, but um, <laughs> uh, it's hard to know. It's hard to know. But uh, this talk is out there and it's extensive and it's got a huge following. Uh, and so, you know, how do you how do you how do you handle that sort of thing? Do you take it with a grain of salt? Is it just a bunch of uh, testosterone blowing off steam? Or are, the, are these folks really that upset that if, do, if it does not go their way politically, if Biden does win, they're going to take up arms? Well, I mean, a couple things. Number one, I mean, these are the same guys who are the ones who hate women because they can't get a date. You know, so they, they go off into the woods with other guys 
you know, and run around with, with, with uh, weapons. And, you know, they're amosexuals. Um, and so that's part of this. The other part of it is that anger feels good, and this, is, this joins people up in something to be angry about. Um, but, you know, the police are the ones who are also their targets for this. In fact, this whole thing that came out about what happened up in Minneapolis, it turns out that it was a, uh, a boogaloo boy who shot up the police station and um, was communicating with this guy out in California who actually killed a federal officer. Uh, you know, was eventually captured. Um, so I just, I, I don't, I don't see this. This is, this was Charlie Manson in the sixties too. Remember he was trying to start a race war. Yeah, but he you didn't know? have a million followers and lots and lots of ammunition Well, but, but that's tanks. only, because, but this is the internet. Okay. There's lots of crazy people on the internet and there's lots of people who with the anonymity of the internet say a lot of things that probably if you actually face them off would not do or, or say, um, the other thing is, it's interesting, people are very willing to be identified. I mean, if, even if you drive around Des Moines, look how many more signs there are in people's yards than there were in 2016. Um, no, most notably, how many signs there are for the Democratic candidates that they were not there in 2016. So, I mean, people don't seem, for the most part, to be that scared to be identified. Hmm. If anything, the people who are scared to be identified are the Trump supporters. Um I, I understand what you're saying, but this isn't anything new. Right-wing, race, right-wing terrorism in the United States has always been the bigger problem. That's what, that's what Christopher Ray just most recently said, but you and I both know it from the history. Well, I mean, what was the greatest terrorist act in the United States other than 9-11? It's the Oklahoma City bombing, right? Right. Or you could argue that it, it was the, 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 uh, the, uh, the, um, the taking of the continent from native peoples was perhaps the biggest act of terrorism. Well, but uh, that, okay, but I'm saying in terms of of what people would remember, and I'm not sure everyone totally remembers that because Americans are not great on history. Right. But no, I mean right wing right wing terrorism has always been here in this country. This country has always has had a, a history of people who were neo Nazis after World War II, and uh, it's part of anti Semitism. It's part of racism. I mean, this is they just have a bigger voice. Because they're on the internet. Well, that's you somewhat know? that's somewhat reassuring, Charles. And let's um, let's wrap it up on that again. Somewhat reassuring note. Um, we got to take a short break. Uh, when we come back, Charles, uh, stick with us. We're going to talk about the um, Trump administration's uh, shredding of workplace uh, safety regulations and all all that happening in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant, well, if you've got an elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Kim Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 
Welcome back to the Talent Forum. Thanks again to our local business partners who helped make this program possible. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, my grocery store. And you can get uh, lunch and supper there seven days a week using their takeout program. You can also get brunch on the weekends. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Hawk Restaurant. Hawk is spelled H-O-Q, Hawk Restaurant in downtown Des Moines. 90% of the food served comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. That's Hawk Restaurant. All right, welcome back to the program again. Charles Goldman with us here. Um, you know, uh, we uh, had uh, several weeks ago, we talked quite a bit about um, concerns of uh, working people, uh, efforts of our labor unions to do, um, do the right thing in the face of some really huge obstacles. And um, one subject that we didn't quite dig into enough, uh, I really think we need to dig into as the pandemic persists, is the um, shredding of work place safety regulations by the Trump administration, uh, by an appointee by the name of Scalia. And um, Charles, I'm sure you know Mr. Scalia. Right. Eugene Scalia, son of late Associate Justice Anthony Scalia. Nope. No, uh, um, no, 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 no patronage there. Well, uh, you know, many people may not know because it's not a, it's, it's not a highly visible position, but um, you know, Scalia was recently appointed to be the uh, Secretary of Labor after um, Acosta had to step down because of his uh, lenient plea deal for Jeffrey Epstein. And, um, you know, Scalia fits into uh, the one of the two kinds of patterns of uh, what your qualifications are uh, to hold the position in the Trump administration. In this case, Scalia is a very knowledgeable uh, lawyer. Um, but, of course, the law that he practices was to basically fight the government over regulations, uh, primarily worker protections. Well, that's, not, that's course, not uncommon with, uh, with Trump appointees. They, he appoints people who actually hate the, you know, the work that those, those agencies are supposed to do. I mean, look at Scott Pruitt. He was of the Scott <laughs> Pruitt model. Yeah. Um, but so he's someone who comes from knowledge. The other Trump appointees, of course, are the ones who appoint the positions in which they have absolutely no knowledge at all, and they'll, of course, undermine those agencies by the fact that they have no idea what they're doing. But Scalia is very clearly knows what he's doing because this is what he's done for his, almost his entire legal um, career. Right. And, and he's, he's been helping corporations out, uh, evading government regulations, um, doing... Right. And, and now you he's, know, for instance... Scalia made uh, partly partly made his name in in the SeaWorld case, you know, the one where the trainer was killed by uh, Tilikum, uh the, the killer whale that actually had killed a trainer at another park. But they didn't tell and the him. argument. Yeah, what's that? They didn't tell yeah. anybody. They didn't. They kept That's that correct. secret. And, yeah. and the argument that SeaWorld made was that in the workplace, it is the employee's responsibility primarily to uh, account for their safety, as opposed to the employer. So, um, you know, when, when people are out there saying, wow, this is great, you know, and, and again, if you watch the commercials, this is all they ever talk about, is, you know, President Trump has gotten rid of all those job-killing regulations. Um, and I would say what President Trump, through people like Scalia, have done is uh, what they've got rid of is regulations about your job killing you. Um, and, right, right. you know, and, and understand that there are many things that go on, there many you know, professions in this country, which are highly dangerous. Uh, and as we well know, one of them is meatpacking. Right. Um, and we all know what happened when it became clearer that uh, the 
COVID-19 was rife in the meatpacking plants around the country. They made up a phony crisis of, uh, you know, we were going to run out of, of meat, and this was therefore an essential industry, and therefore it made these people essential workers, and therefore they had to go to work. But, of course, they would not get paid sick leave. Or be given adequate protections the on the job. Right. Yeah. And uh, the OSHA, uh, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, um, has, I, I believe, has made only two, has, has only found two of these companies violated any OSHA regulations. I think the total of the fines was something like sixty thousand yeah. um, dollars. And this is the nature of uh, the Labor Department under under Scalia. Yeah. Uh, he was he, he fought long and hard against the ergonomic uh, regulations. You know, repetitive injury, uh, repetitive movement injuries that, that people have in various. Uh, Industries, uh, even when they finally were found legal in a the court, they eviscerated uh, the regulations. You know, just by the way they they structured the regulations to the point that they became almost meaningless. But that eventually was pushed back on so hard, and even you know the unions were able to win in the court that those regulations did in fact um, go through. So uh, he, he Scalia is involved in cases in which. His career has mostly been with a company called Gibson Dunn, um, and he is involved in cases which involve his former employer in, in terms of uh, corporations that they're defending. Uh, so the OSHA has done nothing to make the workplace safer in terms of COVID. Uh, it's allowed it, – it sends people out, for instance, in one case – to look at two fatalities that occurred at the Walmart in Massachusetts, and instead of uh, addressing that, they ended up inspecting the roof on the Walmart. Oh, uh, really? Just like every other well, agency. That, what, what, you know, what, what fascinates me is, I mean, the, these concerns should be front and center uh, in the campaign. I mean, people, voters should know about these concerns. Uh, I mean, again, mm -hmm. dozens of rules, dozens of safety regulations being, being scaled back or eliminated by the Trump administration through an appointee who is clearly not concerned about the best interests of workers. And yet you have, you know, you have, you have frontline workers in industries that are affected by these changes. You have, uh, you know, labor union members who, um, who periodically will vote against their best interests. And that's just, um, that's remarkable to me. And again, maybe part of the problem is there's not enough discussion about these changes, about their, the risks to, to folks who, again, are on the front lines. Well, and, and, and the problem, I agree with you totally there, and, and the problem is is when you watch the news, especially over the weekend, when there's not a lot going on, it's simply a repetitive recanting of how many people are dead from COVID, how many new cases there are, and it's over and over. They waste so much time on saying the same thing over and over again, the same people being the commentators on this. And you're right. I mean, you, you've got things that go on, such as simple wage theft. And under the Obama administration, they changed the rules so that you could get punitive damages against these companies that were stealing the money from their own workers. Because without the punitive damages, all they ended up having to do was pay them the wages they owed them anyway. But under Scalia, mm -mm, that yeah. doesn't happen. Yeah. Uh, the issue of are you an independent contractor? Guess where... You know, guess where Scalia's Labor Department stands on this? They broaden the definition of independent contractor, meaning you've got companies like Uber and Grubhub and DoorDash, et cetera, who, by the way, are clients of the company he left to take over as Secretary of Labor. Surprise, um, surprise. Yeah, so that they don't have to get benefits. 
or any of the other things that go along with actually being an employee. And of course, this goes against what's going on in California, where they're trying to force these companies to uh, acknowledge that these people are employees. Um, these are the kinds of things that go on. And you're right, nobody, everyone ignores this. And they just fall for the line that the Republicans give them, which is the, the, the salve for everything is lower taxes on rich people and get rid of regulations. Those aren't regulations. Those are protections. That's why they're there. Right. They are a reaction to, to a, a country which used to have child labor. Yeah, good point. I mean, they're called job-killing you know, restrictions on business, on the freedom of a business to operate as it should. And that's just that's a totally uh, biased way to look at it. They are protections. They are ways of making sure that people don't get hurt. And if they are hurt, that they're compensated appropriately. Right. Interestingly, one of the, one of the little stories that went by that nobody noticed was the Murray, the guy who runs that coal company in West Virginia, the largest private coal company in West Virginia, which is basically going bankrupt under the great revival of coal under President Trump. Um, he is asking for black lung uh, compensation. Oh, really? <laughs> and of course, he spent his entire career when he was the CEO of that very company trying to deny black lung compensation. Right. I- irony of ironies. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Charles, we've got to run to a break here. Um, we could talk about this some more. Maybe we should after the election. <laughs> when we, yeah, hopefully. When we, when, we look at, when we look at what's likely to happen, hopefully it'll be um, a favorable, a more favorable person in charge of the Department of Labor. We will know soon enough, I think. Um, thanks, uh, Charles. We've been talking with Charles Goldman, folks. Dr. Charles Goldman with us frequently on this program. And um, we'll be doing a special election, post-election uh, conversation next week. We'll tell you more about that in Monday's program. But after the election, we'll have, a, we'll have Charles back for a special election analysis. And uh, I'll be back in a minute, folks, with uh, Kathy Burns of Birds and Bees Urban Farm to do a Q&A on fall gardening. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, no-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. They've been doing this work for over 30 years on a wide variety of project types, specializing in super-insulated structures made from, wait for it, grain bins. Yep, with the right experience, tools, and creativity, so much is possible. View images of projects and learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis. Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Thanks again to our local business partners in the Des Moines Metro. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's my grocery store and a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. Lunch and supper through their takeout program seven days a week and breakfast and or brunch on the weekends. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic where Dr. Kim Holding has been treating all creatures great and small for over 30 years. That's Story County Veterinary Clinic. All right, welcome back to the program. Ed Fallon with you here, and with me, Kathy Burns of Birds and Bees Urban Farm. We are talking fall gardening, taking questions and trying to give answers. And, uh, yeah, it's, 
It ain't over yet. The garden, well, it, for a lot of people it is, but it doesn't have to be. Kathy, yeah. welcome to the program. Even uh, two weeks ago, almost a month ago, some people were saying, well, we're done with the garden. We're taking it out. So <laughs> uh, we don't have that luxury because we depend on ours for a lot of the food that we eat. About half. About half of the food that we eat. So um, we're also helping other people learn to turn their yards into dinner through some of our workshops. Check them out. Um, but we, we often see questions on these gardening pages that we belong to on Facebook, and sometimes we like to address them. The first question that stood out for me is not a food growth question, but a flower question. However, it does have greater implications for climate change, and it's, why is my lilac blooming? Should I be worried? <laughs> no, you should be rejoicing in the beauty of the lilac in, in the fall, right? <laughs> well, it, it is beautiful. The point, what, what happened though was that we had a drought this summer. Not good news for climate. And it was followed by some significant rains in September, followed by a cold snap early and then a little warming. So um, during, during the summer, the lilacs put on their buds and those just hunker down and wait for next spring. And the fact that we had drought, it stressed the, the shrubs. It stressed a lot of the plants around here and it stressed any shrub like a lilac. Yeah. And then the massive rains that we had in September were, um, were really, uh, um, you know, not what we expected. And so those, those buds swelled. And then there were, the lilacs thought that we went through winter when there was a cold spell and then a little more warmth after that. And so they blossomed. You might get fewer blossoms next spring. And, um, and it's, it's just another indicator that the climate is not what it used to be. It's yeah. very strange. This is not your grandfather's climate. No, not at all. Do we have a question about garlic too? Yeah. There's a lot uh, of people asking about garlic, I think. Do you have your garlic in? When do I plant my garlic? We we don't have our garlic in. No, and we're, we're happy about that, too. A lot, a lot of people do, though, yeah. from the sound I don't it. like to plant it too early because, uh, you know, if you get a warm snap, like we're going to have mm -hmm. next week probably, yep. it could start sprouting. And, and you really don't want it to, to sprout. I mean, I mean, in my experience, if you start getting green growth above the straw or leaves or whatever you cover with it to mulch it, you know, that, that could get nipped. And... Um, You'll have to start over again. I, I, I saw there was somebody who had uh, planted their garlic in September, and I'm thinking, whoa, that's way too early. We hope it turns out well for you. We right. really do. But, you know, you, you might want to double up your amount of mulch on that in case any of that sprouting is vulnerable to the cold weather that we yeah. have had and are sure to get more of. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's a, I think my, my, my measurement is try to get garlic in at the latest possible moment <laughs> before, before it's really going to get cold. So, again, early November usually works pretty well, sometimes late October. Another question, and it's just a fun one a lot of people are asking. They're posting pictures of their garden right now. Either they've left stuff in or they've taken it out. But the question is, how, you know, what veggies do you still have in your garden? And we, our answer would be quite a few. Yeah, lots. <laughs> uh, even after the uh, 24, 25 degree temps, even after... Probably a total of what four inches of snow, mm -hmm. and three different uh, three different snowfalls. I think we're looking at uh, what collards, Swiss chard, carrots, beets, turnips, uh, kale, of course, and um, lettuce, spinach, arugula. Do I have it covered? Well, some some of it we are now putting blankets on. You know, yes. when we had the snow, 
about a week ago. We didn't need to cover up because the snow was the insulator and it wasn't a frost. Now that we've had frosts, mm. we are putting blankets on some of our plants. We're but not putting, turnips. Not the turnips. We're putting blankets on the carrots, beets, lettuce, spinach, and Swiss chard. We're not putting blankets on the turnips, kale, and collards. And Party stuff. we're also not putting blankets on what is starting to sprout in our cold frame, yeah. which we're excited about. We've, yeah. we've got our second cold frame going now, and we already have lettuces. And what else is up in, in there? Under uh, the glass panes. Radish, lettuce, and uh, arugula are up, but not the spinach yet. And we'll start yeah. eating that about January. Probably. Well, we'll have a little salad a in January, diet. a little one in February, and then... Uh, March 1st or thereabouts, it'll really kick off, kick out, kick in rather, and uh, <laughs> kick out, off, in, whatever, kick in, and we should have a salad every day starting the 1st of March. Salad. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, somebody has a question about celery. How cold tolerant is it? They accidentally left it out during the frost. And I did have to look that one up because we didn't, we, we did go ahead and harvest our celery. It wasn't going to get mm. a lot more growth on it. But it's tolerant down to about 30 degrees. and So not very tolerant. Not too yeah. tolerant. You might want to put your blanket on that if you still have it in your garden. Um, we just cut all of ours. If yours did freeze, you know, if you miss it and it freezes, you can cut that off and bring it in while it's still frozen, slice it up, and yeah. freeze it right away. But as long get, as it doesn't thaw, it'll you got to work fast. You do. Yeah. Or maybe <laughs> slice it while you're outside and put it put it in your uh, container, whatever you yeah. freeze it in. And if you're using Ziploc bags, use those year after year after year. Just wash them mm. and dry them and use reuse them because mm -hmm. they'll last. Yeah. Um, what do I do with all these green tomatoes? That's um, a lot of people had unripe tomatoes on the vine, and we did too. Oh my goodness gracious! Four, five, four, four buckets full of them, I think. Yeah. Were they three and a half gallon buckets or? Five? Yeah, about three and a half gallon buckets. Yeah, they're a lot of tomatoes. We have yeah. a lot of green tomatoes, and some of those will ripen. You know, we 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 selected the the healthiest ones, biggest mm -hmm. healthiest ones, and put them in paper bags. Uh, and, I mean, uh, some people like to wrap them individually in newspaper. We don't have that much Just newspaper. Just put them on moss in paper bags. Yeah, and hopefully that'll be enough to help um, encourage them to ripen over time. And we'll check those so that they don't get any go bad. They'll be rotten ones. Yeah. yeah, they'll be rotten ones that need to come out. But uh, I bet we're going to have some good red tomatoes even still at Thanksgiving. So Exciting. But then there's the green ones. Yeah, what to do, what to do with all them? Well, to me, the easiest thing and sometimes do the easiest thing. <laughs> um, you can slice those up and you can roast them. And the, the easiest way is to put put them into, make them into small chunks, put them on your pan, uh, kind of a big jelly roll pan, add some olive oil, salt, pepper, and a few little chunks of garlic. I roast them on 400 wow. a little faster. Some people take the temp down and roast them for a longer time. But they mm. get, I, to me, it's a break-even thing. They get caramely and good. Um, roasting at 400 for half hour or so, you, you toss them every once in a while. And today, mm. we used some green tomatoes that you sauced. Well, you there was well. a combination of green and green zebra, which is yeah. still greenish when ripe. And they had yeah. kind of a sour, the sauce turned out a little sour, you know, tomato sauce made is a good soup. pretty sweet. It made a really <laughs> lovely curry and coconut yeah. uh, and lentil yeah. soup for lunch with some rice. So yeah. there's a lot, there's a nice flavor profile. Indian food tastes mm. great with, with roasted tomatoes because of that nice bit of sourness. Well, thanks for joining us, Kathy. Really appreciate You're it. Welcome. And uh, we could talk for a long time. There's so many other questions out there. The bottom line is, if you got a garden, it's still going, keep it going because uh, we got some good weather coming and... Um, and, you know, some of that stuff is hardy and can survive a bit of freeze, a bit of frost, a bit of snow. So 
Anyway, give it some love. Keep it going. Uh, we'll be back next week, folks, on the Fallon Forum. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, thanks to our production team of uh, Kathy Burns and Sherry Herdina. Thanks to the stations in Iowa and around the country that pick up this program. You can always check it out as a podcast on the Fallon Forum website. That's FallonForum.com. Again, thanks for tuning in. This is Ed Fallon, your host.